The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Ian Irving and coming up today we discuss the news that broke over the weekend that Cristiano Ronaldo has told Manchester United that he wants to leave if the right offer comes in for him. We also have an exclusive from David Ornstein on the news that Christian Eriksen has verbally agreed to join United. Then our Liverpool writer James Pearce will be here with all the details of Mohamed Salah's new Liverpool contract that could see him earn close to £400,000 a week and our women's football correspondent Charlotte Harper will help us to preview the European Championships which start in England on Wednesday. Stretford End, where he is at home. Ronaldo clatters it in! Without compromise, with utter certainty! Okay, well, only one place to start, and that's Cristiano Ronaldo's future. I'm joined now by our United writer, Laurie Whitwell, who was fully across this story across the weekend. It was Saturday, wasn't it, where it first emerged that Ronaldo wanted to leave, Laurie? What's the sort of background to this before we get into whether he was at training or not today? (laughs) Yeah, quite. Very pertinent was the story by David Ornstein and assisted by Dan Sheldon um, a couple of weeks ago where... They revealed that George Mendes had met with Chelsea um, and also had conversations with Bayern Munich. And the subject of that conversation was Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, so I suppose that was perhaps the the starting gun in this uh, potential saga that we're now seeing unfold. Um, and then Saturday night, Duncan Castles uh, of the Times um, broke the story that Ronaldo had actually informed United that he wanted to leave. So that was kind of an escalation in in developments. Um, David Ornstein then, you know, um, sourced that himself and, and we did the story on The Athletic and then yesterday was basically spent trying to figure out exactly what the next step would be and as we'll get on to in terms of him turning up for training, um, that was kind of a, a key one that I think people were wondering about. Um, but clearly, this has been something that I think has been brewing for a little while, not not the whole summer, certainly not after the end of the season. I think we felt that actually Ronaldo was okay about staying. Okay, he wasn't going to be Champions League football, but he's got the World Cup with Portugal and he wants to be um, you know, playing regularly and in tip-top form for that. Um, but I think something's changed and the developments over the last, yeah, like I say, a couple of weeks have sort of pointed towards this being a really huge story. I mean, United weren't anticipating that Cristiano Ronaldo would ask to leave. Yeah, there's quite a lot of different aspects to this and we'll go through them all, of course. But I think we should start with training then this morning. So he's not turned up. And what's the reason for it? Well, listen, United are citing family reasons and you have to respect that. Clearly, yesterday we were asking people, we got... Uh, sources telling us that they didn't expect Ronaldo to turn up because that was the next step in his exit strategy. You know, if you're if you want to leave, um, it's kind of textbook, really, isn't it? That you you kind of make things a bit difficult for your club. Listen, we don't know the exact reasons. We we do have to respect what United are saying publicly. But everybody else has shown up. I mean, all the international players were due back. Ronaldo was due back. He was expected back. And when we were having conversations with people late last night on Sunday, um, it became clear that United weren't even sure exactly what his plans were. So this has been a very uh, sort of sudden development. It's not something that had been pre-organised that he wasn't going to turn up today. Yeah, the timing as well, I guess, for Manchester United is problematic because Ronaldo, if he'd said this at the end of the season in May, that this was his position, then obviously they would have had a hell of a lot of time to get things sorted out. Now, obviously, it's a totally different situation with the club already back in training and set to go on tour at the end of the week. What's their reaction to it? I mean, how do they feel about 
what's been said and the way it's been done. Yeah, they're keeping the counsel. The only thing that's really coming out is that, you know, they don't entertain selling him. You know, they, they see he has another year on his contract. It's not been in their plans. You look at the way that they've gone about their recruitment, although they haven't actually signed anybody yet, which is kind of remarkable, you know, when we've got a few days before pre-season, it's a new manager in town. But they they didn't go for a striker because they thought, Cristiano Ronaldo would be that guy and it's difficult to buy a striker if you know you're selling them the fact that they're going to be a backup to a guy that clearly doesn't want to ever miss a minute of, of football as we saw last season you know the reaction at Brentford and, and various other um, circumstances where clearly Ronaldo wants to play week in week out so United focused their attentions elsewhere rightly or wrongly you know they didn't go in for Darwin Nunes I had a lot of Liverpool fans sort of scoff at that suggestion over the weekend when I, I tweeted that listen Liverpool I'm sure would have won that race anyway you know they, they put the money down they made their move very clearly but the fact is United were offered Darwin Nunes back in April and they, they didn't make a move for him partly because you know they weren't sure about Eric Ten Hag definitely wanting him partly because they had Cristiano Ronaldo in town and yeah, would Darwin Nunes be a support to that player? But listen, they ha- so they haven't signed a striker. They've not looked to sign a striker. Whether or not that changes now with Ronaldo's you know desire to leave, um, but it doesn't really leave much room for um, negotiations. And, and clearly, the options out there aren't as varied as they were at one point previously. No, obviously, the, the idea that United haven't signed someone's well publicised. It's been cited as a reason for Ronaldo maybe deciding that he doesn't want to be at Old Trafford next season. But fundamentally, what has changed between the end of the season when it sounded like Ronaldo was going to stay to now where it's becoming very clear that he doesn't? I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, without hearing from him directly, it's a little bit speculative, but I suppose, you know, you have time to reflect, don't you? When a season finishes, you might think one way. Like I say, we, we thought that he was kind of okay about staying. You know, okay, he's not committed. He's not, you know... Um, that singing and dancing from the fact that he's not going to be in the Champions League next season, but you know, kind of made. Do you think that's a key thing, it. Laurie? The Champions League, bit? yeah, it's, de- it's definitely. I mean, we saw his performance, didn't we, for United last season in the group stages, and he was like on a one-man mission, wasn't he, to avoid dropping into that Europa League sort of third-place um, finishing position. Um, you know, the goals that he scored last minute. You know, he, he kind of willed United onto the knockout phase, and he's played in that competition. You know, basically his whole adult life. You know, it's it's only when he was a teenager that he didn't, and so for him to be out of that. He's 37, you know, as, as David Ornstein reported, he sees himself as having, you know, three, four more years at the top, which is incredible, really, when you think about it. But you wouldn't necessarily put it past him, you know, 24 goals scored for Manchester United last season. So he views himself at that level to be playing in the Champions League. And maybe on reflection, that's what he's ultimately come down to. And as you say, United haven't made the kind of signings that I think would give confidence. Well, they haven't made any signings yet. We expect them to make signings this week for sure, but it's not like even those signings will be the ones that kind of spread incredible confidence amongst the squad that Ronaldo might have been looking for. United are actually edging closer to signing a couple of players possibly. Yep, uh, Tyrell Malassia, um, the Feyenoord left-back. He's in Manchester, he's at Carrington. Um, he was there on Sunday, he's back again today, which is Monday, for his medical. Um, so I expect that one to be announced um, fairly soon, You know, perhaps even uh, in the coming day. And then also, Lisandro Martinez, who is a centre-back at Ajax, who Ten Hag would obviously worked with, knows him very well. And I think that's one that he's pushed for. I'm hearing positive noises on that. United have made a bid of €40 million Euros guaranteed, rising to €45 million. I think Ajax are trying to hold out for about €50 million, Euros, but there's kind of positive noise about that. Arsenal are rivalling, you know, genuinely. Um, so it's a... A little bit of a debate about where he goes, but he's told Ajax that he wants to move to the Premier League. I do feel like United will ultimately get that one done. And then, yeah, there's obviously other players. Frankie de Jong, talks are still going on with him. You, you know, Juan Laporta has come out and 
uh, said that he's not for sale and kind of playing that kind of game, which I think raised a few eyebrows in Manchester given the talks that are going on behind the scenes. He said that not kind of like stuff. him, is it, to stir the pot? Well, exactly, yeah. You know, Lionel Messi, I think that was the same situation with him, wasn't it? And then he ended up leaving. So, um, yeah, perhaps take that with a pinch of salt. But I don't know if he will... If that'll get done before United fly out on Friday, I think that'll be a bit of a stretch. Uh, and then obviously they've, they've made an offer to Christian Eriksen as well. Thanks for the update, Laurie. Cheers, guys. Well, whilst recording, the Athletics' David Ornstein has broken the story that Christian Eriksen has verbally agreed to join Manchester United. And David is now here to bring us more on this. David, explain. Yeah, Ian, this was the conclusion that we were all waiting for because... Christian Eriksen had a decision to make. Who was he going to join as a free agent this summer after his Brentford contract expired, a six-month deal that I think he signed in early 2022. And he had offers from Brentford, as we revealed, Manchester United, reportedly a couple of others as well. Uh, There were some suggestions in the industry that a deadline had been set for his decision. Clubs wanted to know And especially in the case of Manchester United, because under Eric Ten Hag, they need to plan their new era, their new season, what recruitment they're going to do in and out. And are they going to have Christian Eriksen or are they going to have to look elsewhere? But it's my understanding that Christian Eriksen has now communicated to Manchester United that he wants to accept their offer of a three-year straight contract and that he wants to play for Manchester United. Now, at this point, it is verbal. But the process of drafting contracts is now underway. And if that is finalised, they will move on to conducting medical tests, which are par for the course. They're standard for any player. But given Christian Eriksen's history, it's something that is a significant hurdle that needs to be overcome before the signing can be complete. I don't anticipate any problems on that front. And we've seen the evidence of Eriksen back playing and excelling in the Premier League and at international level. And it seems that Manchester United have almost now got their man. Not quite a done deal, but I think it is going to be done. And uh, what a moment that is for Christian Eriksen and, of course, for Manchester United. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is good news for Manchester United fans, no doubt as well, David, especially after the conversation I've just been having with Laurie Whitwell about Cristiano Ronaldo and his future, which, of course, you've been fully across as well. Yeah, this is a massive question that a lot of eyeballs are on for obvious reasons, because Cristiano Ronaldo came back to Manchester United to great fanfare. It was a deal that was supposed to expire in the summer of 2023, I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong. And Ronaldo is uh, all of a sudden saying that he wants to go now in the summer of 2022. He has informed Manchester United of his decision. You'll remember recently we published an exclusive story that his agent, George Mendes, had met with the new Chelsea co-owner, uh, Todd Bowley, just recently. And among the subjects they discussed was Ronaldo's future and the possibility of him joining Chelsea. Now, we didn't know if Chelsea were looking to take that any further. We think that similar conversations had taken place with Bayern Munich and potentially others as well. Manchester United moved very quickly to say that Cristiano Ronaldo is not for sale and reminded us that he's under contract until the summer of 2023. But then over the weekend in the Times, Duncan Castles broke the story that Cristiano Ronaldo has informed Manchester United that he wants to leave. We managed to corroborate that and publish it 
ourselves. And that's when this situation became very serious. And in subsequent phone calls and conversations uh, around that matter, I've established that Chelsea are considering moving for Cristiano Ronaldo, given his desire to leave if suitable offers arrive to Manchester United. Now, as things stand, Manchester United are standing by their stance that Ronaldo is not for sale. Let's see if that changes. But the situation here is that Chelsea are monitoring it. It is a potential opportunity, an idea, a concept that is believed to appeal to their new hierarchy, uh, which is led by the co-owner, the chairman uh, and the interim sporting director, Todd Bowley. I think and am told that he and a fellow director, Bedad Egbali, are intrigued by this possibility of signing such an iconic player from the world of football. But there are many factors involved in this. Would Manchester United at some point consider selling? Would Manchester United consider selling to a Premier League rival in Chelsea? What would the manager, the head coach of Chelsea, Thomas Tuchel, say about it? Now, it's my understanding that he is a long-term admirer of Cristiano Ronaldo, but he would have to give his blessing to the decision to sign him because he has all of the power at Chelsea right now. He would also have to have conversations with Cristiano Ronaldo if it came to it on where and how he might fit into Chelsea's system and style of play. So this one, I think, has a long way to run. We also reported over the weekend that there is interest from elsewhere, including apparently Napoli, but I'm not sure how that would work financially. Whereas in the case of Chelsea, I don't think the finances would be an issue. It's more whether Manchester United would let it happen and then whether Thomas Tuchel would want it to happen. So there's never a dull moment in the life of Manchester United nor Cristiano Ronaldo. So we expect the next seven days to be busy at Old Trafford. We'll have the very latest, of course, on The Athletic. And there's also lots of United reading up there already, including Adam Crafton's interview with leading recruitment chief Paul Mitchell, who's admitted that he wants to return to the Premier League at some point in the future and has, of course, been linked with clubs in England, including United. We can hear some of that conversation with Adam now. And he starts by reflecting on the challenges he faced when he started in his current role as a sporting director of the French side Monaco. When I arrived, none of this beautiful training centre was here. It's hard to put into words and maybe we should have took some imagery of that first day. But I remember asking the uh, the head of player care to uh, organise a meeting with the staff and the players mm. on the pitch. And we, we only had one because this was very much a working building site that had stopped for COVID. Um, so we was in cabins. Uh, that was designed to to be built for two years, but we had them from 2.14. So I had a very natural shower coming in from one corner of my office, what was very much fun to work in. Um, I remember presenting on the pitch and thinking, wow, we have one training pitch um, and 77 players. It was like someone had given out a a flyer to come and train at AS Monaco for one day. Um, so that posed naturally some some initial short-term problems. How was he even going to stagger the training? Um, how was he even going to house all of these professionals in COVID yeah. um, with the restrictions and protocols that we needed to put medically in place? Um, so straight away, you're you're really you're in the deep end, mm. and you have to sort through that, trying to best to make a 
assessment of, of the quality of the player, the profile of the player, the type of player, while building the team in our reflection of how we want the game to be played, not missing a talent or maybe a young talent that you've inherited and you don't know yeah. so much about. So really long days, a lot of work, very fortunate to have the experience of the technical director, Lawrence Stewart, that knew them uh, from a recruitment perspective and their journeys and histories to make them them uh, critical decisions. But yeah, to say it was a baptism of fire day one or week one was, was probably an understatement. You, you'll be aware your reputation in England is getting bigger and bigger. There's like relentless speculation mm. about United, Chelsea being interested in you. Has there been anything in that at all? I think the way the way I look at it is similar to the way I look at anything we do here. If there's speculation with with the size of organisations that both of the clubs mm. you mentioned are, I think it, it can only be seen as a positive mm. uh, for myself and, and for Monaco. That shows that we're doing a good job. Uh, we're disturbing the market in a good way. I think that would be a nice way to that I reflect on that. And, you know, you can never say never. You know, I am from England. I think definitely one day, I think I'm still relatively a young man, <laughs> even though I look a lot older. Um, I will, will clearly go back to the Premier League uh, and to friends and family um, over there as well. But I'm still enjoying the work. And while the agreements are in place between me and the major yeah. shareholder in particular, and the board um, of ways of working, processes of working still stand. I, I suspect that I'm still going to be here, but I see it as um, a great reflection, not only to me, but all of the great colleagues I work with every day that, you know, brands like that are, are mentioned in, in, in the same sentence as myself. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Salah. He's done it again. Mo Salah. Still Salah. Right, our Liverpool writer James Pearce joins us now on the news that broke on Friday that Mohamed Salah has signed a new three-year contract at the club. I mean, this is definitely welcome news, James, no doubt about it. It was a bit of a saga, in fairness. Um, what was the breakthrough? The breakthrough in the end was a you know a, a significantly improved offer from uh, from Liverpool's owners. You know, you're right, it had been a you know a protracted and at times acrimonious saga, kind of really going back to the summer of 2020 when you know, Salah's agent first hoped that the club would open talks about a new contract. It was the following year, 2021, before those discussions really got underway. And then, you know, certainly around the turn of the year when Rami Abbas had flown out to Miami to meet FSG president Mike Gordon. We know that at that point there was a, you know, a big gulf between, you know, what what was on the table and what was what was being demanded. And, you know, as that kind of kind of went just rolled on through the second half of the season. I think not surprisingly fans were starting to get increasingly concerned because I think kind of history shows that once an elite player gets down inside that last year of his contract, usually it results in them leaving for nothing. And that was why I think this closed season 
was always going to be you know, pivotal in terms of trying to find a resolution. And um, yeah, just in the last couple of weeks, you know, they they've managed to make that breakthrough. And then that led to, you know, Julian Ward, Liverpool's new sporting director, flying out to the Greek island of Mykonos um, last week to, to sort out the, the final few details with Salah and his agent and leading to that announcement late on, on Friday afternoon. Yeah, any excuse to get out on a holiday <laughs> at this time of the year, I'm sure. I'm sure they uh, enjoyed that little soiree to Mykonos. Never have emojis been more important to Liverpool fans either. His agent has sort of been known for this throughout the time, but even the club got involved this time as well. It's a bit of a twist. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was, it was was funny, actually, over the weekend, reading back over the, the replies to Rami Abbas's, you know, laughing emoji that he'd put out, I think about two hours before the official announcement on Friday and you know, because it's been a theme of this saga, the fact that he's he's made these kind of, I suppose, half cryptic posts on social media. I think most people <laughs> kind of leapt to the conclusion that it was a, you know, almost like a mocking response to a latest contract offer. And so he was inundated with some, well, a fair bit of stick. choice words. Yeah, some yeah. choice words would be a, a nice way of putting it. And, uh, but, you know, do you know what? I think throughout this whole saga, you know, Rami Abbas is, you know, it's, it, you know, it's been water off a duck's back to him, really. I think he, he he's, I, I, think, I don't think it's bothered him being portrayed as this kind of pantomime villain because I think he's he enjoyed it. I think, yeah, I think, I think, you know, his mission was clear from the outset to get the best possible deal for his client. And, and he will feel that he's, he's done that in the end. Obviously, Liverpool got into the spirit of it late on, replying to his laughing emoji with a face palm emoji. And then I think the, um, yeah, the, the official announcement was a, a few minutes after that. So all smiles and all laughs in the end. Relations weren't always that cordial throughout the process. No. But um, I think in the end, you know, everyone got what they wanted. I think Salah got the deal that gives him the recognition that he is one of the greatest players in world football. And and Liverpool get to keep their, their biggest asset for the, the peak years of his career. Because... Um, you know, it, it was a growing fear that they might lose him. Yeah, you detailed in the piece how the difference between what Salah was expecting in terms of his status uh, in world football and the deal that had initially been offered by Liverpool, how that sort of reflected a, a difference between the expectation of the player and the expectation of the club, maybe. So when you said at the top that Liverpool's owners decided to offer this increased contract deal to Salah, what has convinced them that they needed to do that then? And that's the thing that obviously has, has unlocked Salah signing this deal? I think more than anything, it's just when you when you take a step back and you weigh it all up, you know, it was, it, the, the choice was pretty stark for the owners. It was, you either make him an offer that is going to convince him to stay or you accept the reality of losing him for nothing, you know, next summer. Because that, you know, it, it was, there was, Salah said towards the back end of last season, there's absolutely no chance of going anywhere this summer I will definitely be a Liverpool player for 22-23. And I think also, you know, there's always been this thing that, you know, you don't want to commit vast sums of money to players who, you know, once they're into their 30s, obviously Salah just turned 30, you know, recently. But I think the more you look at it, and I'm sure, you know, Liverpool's owners do turn heavily to the data. You know, you look at it, there's no sign of Salah slowing down. You know, it's you know, what was you know 31 goals in all competitions last season. You know, it equaled his, equaled his second best season ever for the club um you know shared the golden boot with son at tottenham you know picked up the award for most top flight assists yes there was a drop off in the final few months of the season but you know i think that was to be expected you know after you know the emotional 
as well as physical for kind of fatigue, I think, kicked in on the back of losing the final of AFCON and then the playoff for the World Cup with Egypt as well. And, and the thing with Salah is he's incredibly durable. When you look, you know, he, he's averaging over 50 appearances a season for Liverpool, you know, since he arrived five years ago. You know, when you add all that up, you know, £350,000 a week for the next three years is about £55 million in wages, which... Of course, that's a, a big commitment. But when you flip it round, you know, what could you, you know, you couldn't replace Mo Salah for 55 million pounds. You know, it's it, in the end, you know, I I think, you know, of, of course it was a complex negotiation. and But I think, you know, certainly I get the feeling that all parties are, are really happy with the outcome. Was Sadio Mane leaving a factor? Uh, Liverpool insists not. They, they, they would say that they were still keen to extend Sadio Mane's contract and the um the big difference between Salah and Mane was that was that where Salah's preference was always to stay and it was just about the contract Mane was reluctant to enter contract talks and then you know it, it became increasingly clear that he wanted to embark on a new challenge and had had this fantastic offer on the table from Bayern Munich that he wanted to take up but yeah I I think there has to be an element of that as well when you know you see you know, obviously Mane's wages have gone off the wage, but, you know, Divock Origi is another one who, you know, he would have been earning around £100,000 a week. He's obviously left on a free transfer as well. So that, you know, and, and Darwin Nunes will have come in on, you know, let certainly, you know, lower wages than Mane was on. So that, that certainly, I think, is, you know, you know, certainly freed up, you know, probably a bit more kind of leverage in terms of the wage bill as well. And, you know, and, and if Liverpool have made the decision to divert those funds Salah's way, then I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone would argue with 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 that decision. Yeah, because obviously there's doubts over Roberto Firmino's long-term future now as well because of his contract running down. So the idea of losing Mane, Salah, and Firmino, the three forwards at Liverpool before probably this season had really pinned their whole structure and team on would would have been quite a shift in one summer, wouldn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's always been. You know, because this this has been kind of like looming on the horizon for a couple of years, really. The 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 fact that it, you know Liverpool knew that Salamane Firmino all had contracts that expired in the summer of 2023. You know, it would have left too much of a void to have replaced you know all of them in in quick succession. It had to be a gradual evolution of the front line and very expensive as well. Yeah, very you know incredibly expensive. And I think it's worked out really well. I think when you you know Firmino's role has dwindled. To the point where you know, I don't think I, you know, I don't think it would be the end of the world if 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 he did go on a free next summer. You know, you look at obviously Diogo Jota has come in and kind of taken his place. Then you look at you know the impact of Luis Diaz in January. Now they've gone and signed Darwin Nunes for what could potentially be a club record fee. Yeah, it's a bit of a changing of the guard in that front line. The priority for Liverpool, you know, out of those, you know, the long established front three was always keeping Salah, you know, I remember someone at Liverpool sent me about 18 months ago, you know, that Salah will be the one that they, you know, they, they kind of throw the kitchen sink at to do everything to stay. I think when you look at it, Mane got what he wanted with his move, you know, Liverpool haven't had to replace two big names in the same window. Now they've got Salah sorted out for the next three years. So um, yeah, it's certainly been a busy start to Julian Ward's tenure as sporting director. But I think the great thing for Klopp is that, 
you know, a lot of those issues have been resolved before they've even reported back for pre-season. Yeah, it's a bit of a contrast to Manchester United that we've just been talking about, certainly. Uh, you've done a mailbag that's on The Athletic at the moment for Liverpool fans. Firmino's future is one of the topics that you've covered in there. Also links to Jude Bellingham and an interest in maybe bringing him in next summer, which again points to just how organised Liverpool are in terms of their recruitment. I, I guess the one thing about the Salah contract, James, that may complicate things a little bit is his wage and the level of it going to affect Liverpool's opportunity to bring players in in future? Because is everyone not going to ask for slightly more now Salah is being paid such a, a vast sum of money? I mean, I, certainly I think in the, in the short term, I, I don't see any issues there in terms of, you know, I, I certainly don't think you're going to have players going and knocking on Julian Ward's door this week, that, demanding that they, that they get parity because... Um, you know, I, th- I think when you look at it as well, the other kind of real elite players in that Liverpool squad, their, their contracts have still got a you know a long a long period left on them. You think of you know Van Dijk, Trent Alexander Arnold, people like that to twenty twenty five. I think Allison's till twenty twenty six. So so no, and, and you know from the just from the feedback I've had, like a few of the players, you know they they're just buzzing the fact that that Salah is sticking around, and their opinion seems to be that he he deserves every penny. I think in terms of in terms of potential kind of business, I, you know, Liverpool have have indicated that they're pretty happy with what they got. That you know they you know they've obviously you know getting a replacement in for Mane was the priority. They've done that with Nunes. And they've brought in two really gifted young players in in Fabio Carvalho and and Calvin Ramsey. Who, you know, obviously will be Trent Alexander Arnold's deputy. So I think I think probably the one kind of nagging area for that fans are still talking about is obviously will they go and bolster their midfield with a, a central midfield signing but no you know despite the fact that they do really like Jude Bellingham you know who, who wouldn't but that that is very much kind of with an eye on 2023 rather than this window. Go and check out that mailbag article if you want to know more about everything going on at Liverpool at the moment. Of course, all the details on Mohamed Salah's deal and how it was signed over in Mykonos, the lucky men who sorted that in the sunshine. You can read more about it on The Athletic right now. Thanks, James. Cheers, Ian. Daly. England with a reprieve. And here's Hemp. Hemp plays it in and Mina A sweeping move from England. The Athletics women's football correspondent Charlotte Harper joins us now then to look ahead to the European Championships, which starts in just a couple of days' time now in England. Now, record crowds, star players, prime time coverage, a good chance of England doing well, certainly according to a computer, if nothing else. All the ingredients are there for a really exciting tournament, Charlotte. Absolutely. World-class footballers, as you said, uh, home nation Wembley, Old Trafford, it should be a cracker and I'm buzzing. Yeah, I think we all are in a sense because I think there's far more focus on this tournament and the Euros than there's ever been before. Certainly when the tournament was held here in 2005, it's a totally different feel to this, isn't it? Absolutely. Like, I don't remember watching Euro 2005. Like, I know it was on TV, but it wasn't as available as it is now. I mean, the WSL didn't even exist at that tournament you had eight teams this year we've got 16 players weren't full-time it was hosted solely in the northwest whereas this year we've got an array of stadiums and I know we're going to come on to that uh, Nancy Frostick's article explaining the evolution from Euro 2005 mentioned that it was the first time players saw fans with their names 
on their back. And, and that was really impactful for them. So the, the difference 17 years ago is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess as well, it helps that England are being tipped to do pretty well as well. They're being labelled as favourites uh, by a simulator, I believe. Yeah, so this is uh, from uh, Nielsen Grace Notes, which deals with data analysis. And what they do is they run the tournament over kind of a million times simulations of the tournament now. You have to take it with a pinch of salt because the teams are ranked according to their FIFA uh, rankings. Uh, but according to the simulation, England are the favourites, mainly because of that home advantage. And that gives them the extra boost which I think is a really interesting talking point. Of course, home advantage, uh, a huge number of fans backing you. But uh, as we know with the men's side, if you're 2-0 down at a huge stadium and it gets a bit nervy in the first 20 minutes, you know, that can play against you at times. And I'm sure, you know, the Dutch will be in full support for their team, previous hosts in 2017. And they bring all manner of kind of orange but again uh, data has shown tickets from germany france and all over the world people are excited to to see the best talent on show there's lots of euros preview of course on the athletic right now including a look at the groups a look at some of the squads and squad profiles and things like that so of course head there if you want to know more about any of the players or any of the teams involved in this tournament but in terms of this england side who's exciting you the most Lauren Hemp, hands down, like she's so exciting to watch, so threatening. As soon as she's on the ball, you know she's going to do something dangerous with it. It's her hips, like she just snakes through those defenders. <laughs> um, and she's only 21, uh, named PFA uh, Young Player of the Year uh, four times so far. Um, but she just takes it in her own stride. She's quite shy as a character. Um, but yeah, uh, keep your eye out for, for Lauren Hemp. It's an exciting England team, uh, especially the attacking prowess we have with Beth Mead, Chloe Kelly coming back into the squad as well. But we've also got big character in Mary Earps and goal, Captain Leah Williamson stepping up, Millie Bright, Lucy Bronze. Yeah. Um, and the influence of Serena Wiegmann as manager, has been instrumental since her appointment in September. Yeah, and there's been a lot said this week as well about the change in mindset that she's brought and the different sort of feel of... Phil Neville was quite an emotional coach, is, is how he was described, and, and Vigman's just brought a totally different approach to it. And do you think the fact that she's not English maybe helps a little bit? I mean, Millie Bright's been speaking about the mindset change that she's brought about. There's not that... There's a bit of a, a disconnect that... Maybe in the past when, when the English men's team had Sven-Goran Eriksson, he brought a totally different feel to, say, Kevin Keegan, who came before him. Each manager brings their own uh, style and their form of communication as well. Um, players weren't willing to kind of compare Phil Neville um, and Serena Wiegmann, which is the inevitable uh, comparison to make. But what the players have said, that it's very clear what Serena Wiegmann wants from them. Every player knows their role. There's no grey areas. You know where you stand. And I think they really appreciate that transparency and honesty. I um, was in North Macedonia watching uh, England in one of their World Cup qualifiers and we sat down. Serena Wiegmann looked at her watch and said, I've got nine minutes until training starts, just to let you know. You get an idea straight away then, don't you? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, very warm, very friendly with the media, but also no messing around. How long did the interview last? Uh, eight minutes, 45 seconds. <laughs> so you pushed it as much as you could then. Uh, what, what about England aside then? Who else um, have you got your eye on in terms of the other favourites for the tournament? 
Uh, I think Sweden uh, are really, really strong contenders, especially um, since their silver medal in the Olympics last year. They're very flexible with their formation. They can adapt uh, from that back four to a back three. Um, players like Chelsea captain Magdalena Eriksson, but also Aslani, Black Stenius from Arsenal, Rolfel from Barcelona. They're ones to watch. Uh, France and Spain, the quality of players on offer is exceptional. They are the best teams, I think, uh, in terms of quality uh, on an individual basis. It's whether they can gel uh, as a team and adapt to those uncomfortable situations when teams are putting you under pressure. They've also struggled in major tournaments. like They don't have semi-final, final experience in, in those senior ranks. Uh, Norway have a frightening front three of Guro Wrighton of Chelsea and Graham Hansen from Barcelona and, and Ada Hegerberg. She is huge, um, having come back to international uh, football for Norway. And she is a game changer who will put the ball in the back of the net. Obviously, we've spoken about a lot of the positives for this tournament. There has been one criticism about some of the venues that the games are going to be played at. England, of course, start against Austria at Old Trafford and there'll be a huge crowd for that, I'm sure. But some of the games in particular being played at places like the Manchester City Academy Stadium, which is a, a brilliant venue for women's football. And of course, the women's uh, Manchester City team have used that in recent times. But at just 4,700 fans available to go to that game, is that the right sort of place for this tournament to be taking place? So it was Iceland captain Sara Bjork, uh, Gunnar's daughter, who really spoke out the issue and said it, it's not the respect that they deserve. And it wasn't um, to do with the quality of the stadium. As you said, Manchester City women play there. Brilliant stadium uh, in terms of pitch surface. But the capacity is 4,700. And that's lower than the group game average of the 2017 Euros. And Iceland FA have said, you know, we could have sold that stadium over two or three times. So it is disappointing um, that there is such a, a low capacity, especially uh, because standing terraces are not permitted in UEFA competitions. So that capacity has to be reduced if uh, a temporary seating solution can be found. When I asked UEFA uh, that's they said they weren't going to put necessarily plans in place for temporary seating. So it is a difficult strategy because UEFA wanted to go for a mix of stadiums. They wanted to sell out um, stadiums rather than have empty seats. And it is a tricky balance to strike, especially with the combination of stadiums you have on offer. So you've got from the Etihad 4,700 Lee Sports Village, uh, where Manchester United women play, but that's not in Manchester. You have no. to, you know, take public transport to get out there, and it's a trek. Then you're going up to the New York Stadium in Rotherham, twelve thousand. Brentford, around seventeen thousand, and then you start building with Milton Keynes, uh, Brighton's Amex, Southampton at St Mary's, Sheffield Bramall Lane, and finally Old Trafford, and then the final at Wembley. I think it's disappointing, and then they've. Uh, undersold and underestimated the popularity of women's football. 500,000 tickets have been sold um, and I hope that everyone who has bought a ticket turns up and, and supports the women's game. It's not just the stadiums that bid to host games, it has to be part of the local council and host cities and the southwest, northeast, uh, the west or east midlands didn't submit a bid at all 
uh, to host a Euros game. So, and they say a number of host cities couldn't commit because of either the unavailability of the stadium, refurbishments, concerts. Uh, some host cities were focusing on the summer's Commonwealth Games or the, the Rugby League World Cup later on in the autumn or a lack of financial support as well. You have to ask why those host cities didn't want to stage a game for Euros 2022. And I think the governing bodies should definitely be looking into that for the future. All the stories we've discussed on today's podcast are, of course, on The Athletic right now, plus more. And remember, you can subscribe for just £1 a month right now. Head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But for the minute, thank you for everyone for coming on and thank you for listening at home. Bye-bye. The Athletic.